Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's all stand. It is good to be in the presence of God this morning and in the presence of his people. Amen. What an awesome privilege we have. What an awesome responsibility we have to make the very most of this opportunity that God has given us this morning. Amen. Let's go to him in prayer. Let's ask that he would bless his service, bless those around you, and that his perfect will would be accomplished here this morning. Jesus, you're an awesome God. You are a mighty king, and we heap glory and honor unto you this morning because that you are worthy. You are worthy to receive all worship, all praise, all glory, all honor. Thank you, Jesus, for this opportunity you've afforded us this morning to enter into the very presence, the very throne room of Almighty God, to make our petitions, our requests known unto you, to receive of you your good gifts, to minister unto you this morning, to wait upon the Lord our God, and to give you our worship and our praise and our thanksgiving for all that you have done and for who you are. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. You are the Lord. You are the Lord God. You are worthy of our worship and praise. You're worthy of our full attention. Every word that you speak unto us is light. Every word you speak is life. Hallelujah, Jesus. Help us to receive all that you have this morning and glorify your name in our midst today, I pray. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Hallelujah, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise God. God bless you. You can be seated. Thank you so much. We're going to continue our study on uh, world religions. Today, we have kind of an interesting one, shamanism. And um, the reason for that, it's a obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but it is a non-Christian religion. Uh, It is not what we would consider a Christian-based religion, like a Protestant or a Catholic or something like that. It is a non-Christian religion. It is uh, shamanistic in nature. We'll talk about all that. But before we do, it's important to understand, uh, you know, we look at all of these different religions. Uh, someone this morning commented on, you know, we've got all these isms in the world today. Uh, communism, humanism, atheism, shamanism. Uh, and why is that? Well, obviously, they can't all be right because they contradict each other in so many ways. Uh, so how do we determine which one is right? I mean, there are a lot of religions out there today. Even in Christianity, there are a lot of denominations out there. How do we determine which one is which? By what standard do we use? And is Christianity even true? Should we be looking at uh, shamanism? Should we be looking at Buddhism or Shintoism or, or some other religion or a philosophy? Maybe we should be looking into philosophy, existentialism, uh, hedonism. You know, there, there, there's a ton of philosophies out there. How do we determine truth? How do we determine what's true and what's not? Do we just look at all of them and, and determine which one looks good? Well, that would make us the standard of truth then, wouldn't it? If we get to judge which one is right and which one is wrong, then we become the arbiters of truth. And I hope we know by now that's not true. We are not the arbiters of truth. Uh, We did a study a little while ago on something we called presuppositional apologetics. In other words, things that we presuppose to be true. And... It's important to know, as we're going through these different world religions, why we believe the, Christian, the biblical Christian worldview is the proper worldview. It's important to understand that. Because if we don't understand that, we go through all of these different religions and we're, we're just kind of picking and choosing. We're just kind of, well, that sounds pretty good. That sounds even better. Maybe we'll go with this one. And that we, we can't sort through truth like that. Does it comport with reality? Is it internally consistent? I mean, there are... This isn't the time and place for that. We already did that. But just to, to, just to point out, it's important to know these things. It's important to know why we believe what we believe. 
So when we examine these other religions and when we're talking to other people who sincerely believe these to be true, we can present to them a case as to why. Because they're not going to believe your, your Bible. They're not going to believe that your God is, is speaking to us through his word. But we can demonstrate to them. Now, I understand, of course, that the word of God is quick and powerful. God can work through that. God can remove the veil from off of their hearts, and we desperately need God to do that. But as far as what you and I can do, we cannot do that. We can't fill them with the Holy Ghost. We can't get them to see truth. God has to show that. He has to reveal that to them, just like he revealed it to you and me. But what we can do is present it to them in such a way as is compelling. It's a compelling argument. We see all through Scripture how Paul reasoned mightily through the Scriptures. He reasoned with them. It's okay to reason with people. It's okay to present a logical, cogent defense of your belief system. And that's what we do. What we're doing here today is understanding where they're coming from so we can more properly give a defense for ours, more properly and more effectively give a case for Christianity. So we read in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 26, Ye shall not eat anything with the blood, neither shall ye use enchantments, nor observe times. And again in Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 through 12, we see this. There shall not be found among you anyone that maketh his son or his daughter to pass through the fire, or that useth divination, or an observer of times, or an enchanter, or a witch, or a charmer, or a consulter with familiar spirits, or a wizard, or a necromancer. For all that do these things are an abomination unto the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. Now as we proceed through this particular lesson, we're going to find shamanism has most or even all of these aspects built into it. So we can see right away that shamanism uh, doesn't really comport with Christianity very well. They don't mix very good. And so we need to understand what they believe. We need to understand why they believe this. And we also need to understand that Scripture speaks very specifically against some of their doctrines, some of their beliefs. Now, we're not going to start slamming them because of it. We're not going to start quoting Scripture and, you're wrong and I'm right. That wouldn't have worked for most of you. It wouldn't have worked for me. But with compassion and love, we can demonstrate to them that we have a superior belief system. And by superior, I mean it comports with reality. It has power to save and to deliver. A lot of these religions, they, in fact, every one of them, look good on paper. They look good on the surface. If you look at uh, political philosophies, I mean, socialism is all the, all the rage today. It looks good on paper. It really does. If you, if you see it, what they're trying to do, I mean, it's very appealing. Everyone's equal. Everyone gets a fair share. But as soon as you put a people in there, then it falls apart. It doesn't work in the real world. And we, we see that a lot with different religions, different philosophies. It doesn't work when it really matters. When it comes down to the wire, they fall apart in one or more areas. And so, we need to know that the Christian worldview is the correct and proper worldview. We need to have that settled in our hearts. Because they have it settled in their hearts. But the problem is, most people don't dig. Most people don't examine all the way down. I hope as Christians we do or we have. It's okay to examine your worldview all the way down because I promise you, as far down as you can go, you're going to come up golden. The Christian worldview withstands scrutiny just fine, thank you. 
It will withstand any questions. It will withstand any scrutiny, any criticism that you can bring against it. It stands fast. It stands firm. No other worldview will do that. The farther down you dig, the more inconsistencies we'll find. Not just within its own doctrines, its own tenets, but with reality as well. Now we find some non-Christian religions and philosophies, they cover that by saying, well, this isn't actually real. We don't know what reality is. And so they just kind of remove that whole equation from the, from the conversation. Another reminder, people believe these sincerely. They are wrong. They are incorrect. But they believe them sincerely. And it's our responsibility to love them, to have compassion on them, and to try to bring them to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Amen. Shamanism is a very broad topic. It encompasses many different belief systems, depending on the culture that we're referring to. Uh, There are shamanistic uh, religions in Asia, Africa, Central America, the Pacific Islands, etc. And we'll touch on some of those broader aspects, some of the things that shamanism as a whole have in common. But the reason I wanted to introduce shamanism to us today is because uh, we have a Hmong population here in La Crosse County. And a lot of them are bringing or have brought shamanism over. This is what they practice. This is what they believe. And so, uh, so we'll be looking more specifically into Hmong shamanism later on. Shamans are spiritual beings with the ability to heal, work with energies, and see visions. The essential characteristics of shaman are mastery of energy and fire, as a medium of transformation and an intimate knowledge of the spirit world. Okay, shamanism is a range of traditional beliefs and practices that involve the ability to diagnose, cure, and sometimes cause human suffering by traversing the axis mundi, between physical and spiritual, and forming a special relationship with or gaining control over spirits. Shamans have been credited with the ability to control weather, divination, the interpretation of dreams, astral projection, and traveling to upper and lower worlds. Shamanistic traditions have existed throughout the world since the very earliest times. Now, this religion is a very spiritually based religion. They believe in the supernatural. They believe in the spirit world. Okay, Unlike some Christians today. They understand something that some Christians don't. That there are spirits in the world today. And they affect people. They deal with people. Some of you are hearing spirits talking right now. Distracting. Confusing. Causing doubt. Some of you will hear them this week. They are real. That's why we're going through this whole thing on spiritual warfare. These are our enemies. There are religions in the world today that treat them as friends, as counselors, as guides. They are not any of those things. They will guide you. They will counsel you. But they will counsel you to your destruction. They will lead you to your damnation. Don't listen to them. Do not follow them. Okay. But shamans do. And... Another aspect of this is, you know, Christians, especially in the Western world, they don't like to talk about demon possession. They don't like to talk about uh, oppression, these, these, these uh, aspects of spiritual warfare. We're very uncomfortable with that in the Western world because we've been inundated by science. We have been affected whether we want to accept that fact or not, whether we want to believe it or not. We have been inundated from the very earliest age all the way through that science is good and religion is bad. Science is fact. Religion is faith. You can believe whatever you want to believe, but this is what's real. It's science. And we have been affected by that as a church in the Western world. And 
We need to become unaffected by that. Yes, science is good. I, I believe in science. I think science is fascinating and awesome. And it's, it leads to wonderful discoveries. But in its proper context, science isn't God. Science is God in our, our culture today. I'd be willing to wager, were I a betting man, which I'm not, but if I were, I would be willing to wager Christianity as a whole, more people would listen to Dr. Fauci than they would their own pastor. Why is that? Because science is God in the United States today. Science so-called. But there are spirits in the world today. Shamans understand that. They deal with them differently than they ought to. There is power in the spiritual world. We talk about uh, witch doctors. They don't call them witch doctors anymore. They're called medicine men or shamans. Okay, uh, But you know what I'm referring to when I say witch doctor. We've seen cartoons, we've heard stories uh, about them calling down lightning and, and cursing people and causing them to become sick and die. Folks, that's real. That actually happens. They do have spiritual power. The enemy gives them spiritual power. Uh, Brother Melvin Thacker was our pastor in River Falls for a while. Uh, he was the district superintendent in Minnesota for a little bit. He's retired now. But before that, him and his wife were missionaries to uh, Zambia and Zimbabwe, right? Okay, in Africa. He dealt with these uh, kinds of situations all the time. He's witnessed these things. He's witnessed shamans calling down lightning. He has witnessed people being cursed and dying. He's witnessed these things. And he can go on and on and on. These things are real. You can, you can just blow it off as, as fantasy or fiction, but it's not. There is power in the spiritual world, and people know how to tap into that. There is power in the spiritual world for us if we know how to tap into it. If we will simply accept the fact that we are sons and daughters of the Most High God, if we will simply accept the fact that God has He's baptized us with power and with authority to enact His will on this earth. He has anointed us. He has given us dominion. He has given us uh, the responsibility and the ability to do that. We have to be doing our Father's business. We have to be affecting this world in a manner that is consistent with His will. That's what we need to be doing. Stop trying to explain these situations away by saying, well, it's just a migraine. Well, it's just, uh, it's just this. It's a medical thing. It's, 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 a, it's a psychological thing. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it is. But let's not dismiss the fact out of hand that it might be spiritual. These things are real. They actually happen in the real world. Shamanism is based on the premise that the visible world is pervaded by invisible forces or spirits that affect the lives of the living. In contrast to animism, which is the belief that non-human entities, such as animals, plants, and inanimate objects, possess a spiritual essence, and animatism, the belief that all things, even those considered to be inanimate objects, possess consciousness, which any and usually all members of society practice, shamanism requires specialized knowledge or abilities. So the shaman is someone who has unique, specialized gifts given to them by spirits. They possess unique knowledge, again, given to them by the spiritual world. The word shaman originated among the Siberian Tungus and literally means he or she who knows. That's what shaman means. 
It has replaced the older English language term witch doctor, a term which unites the two stereotypical functions of the shaman, knowledge of magical and other lore, and the ability to cure a person and mend a situation. However, this term is generally considered to be anthropologically inaccurate. Most traditional peoples today prefer the term medicine man. Okay, it's history. Anthropologists who study shamanism believe that it predates all organized religions, dating back to the Neolithic period, which is a fictional period of history, naturalistic history. It's considered to be the last division of the Stone Age, dating from around 12,000 B.C. to around 6,500 B.C. That ended with the advent of metallurgy leading into the Bronze and Iron Ages. Okay, Christians who believe Scripture can trace shamanism back to the Tower of Babel under King Nimrod. Aspects of shamanism are encountered in later organized religions, generally in their mystic and symbolic practices. In this way, it's believed that Greek paganism was influenced by shamanism. Some of the shamanistic aspects of the Greek religion were later adopted into the Roman religion. (laughs) The Romans pretty much just renamed it, rebranded it, and just went with it. (laughs) It's kind of funny, actually. Tibetan Buddhism is believed to have shamanistic influence. Spiritual realization is a common element of both, sometimes with the help of psychedelic substances. That is uh, one common aspect of a lot of these religions is ingesting psychedelic drugs uh, to help them contact the spiritual realm. After the fall of Roman civilization, Christianity began to flourish. Christianity has had a profound effect on shamanism. Anthropologists have noted that whenever Christianity came to a region where shamanism was practiced, the Christians eliminated it altogether as well as any pagan religion they came in contact with. Temples were destroyed, key ceremonies were outlawed. Beginning with the Middle Ages and continuing into the Renaissance, or Renaissance, just sounds cooler, remnants of European shamanism suffered due to campaigns against witches. These campaigns were often orchestrated by the Catholic Inquisition. As Christian influence began to spread within Spanish colonization, Shamanism continued to decline. In the Caribbean, Central, and South America, Catholic priests were instrumental in the destruction of shamanistic traditions, denouncing practitioners as worshiping devils and even having them executed. In North America, the English Puritans conducted periodic campaigns against individuals perceived as witches. Okay, today, shamanism, once universal, survives primarily among indigenous peoples. This is especially widespread in Africa as well as South America where Mestizo shamanism is widespread. We'll talk about that in just a second. The tactics that the Christian church used in times past uh, to counter false doctrine is not in a manner of speaking biblically correct. It is not, uh, I say that tongue-in-cheek, I probably shouldn't, because there were a lot of atrocities enacted by the Christian church under the guise of religion, under the guise of this is the will of God. It is most certainly not the will of God to persecute, to torture, and to destroy people, no matter what they believe. Okay. We always want to go on record saying that. Were they right in denouncing these religions? Yes, I believe so. I believe they were. They are worshiping devils. They are, they are dealing with familiar spirits. However, it's just like any other sin. It's like homosexuality. It's like shacking up together. It's like lying. It's like cheating, stealing. It's like any other sin. It needs to be denounced as such. It's sin. It's a sin problem. And that's really what all of this boils down to. Human beings have a sin problem. And because we're broken and degenerate and can't think straight anymore, 
What really makes us dangerous is that we think we can. We believe we know ourselves. We believe we know our hearts. We believe that we can discern truth from error. But we can't. We are so easily duped. We are so easily deceived. And so sin comes to us and tells us, well, the enemy comes to us and says, you can decide for yourself what's right and wrong. That's very appealing to a lot of people. Because if I can decide, I'm just going to decide everything I want to do is right. And everything I don't want to do are things I don't want you to do. That's wrong. Makes sense, doesn't it? But is that truth? Again, no, of course it's not. Of course it's not. So the Christian church denouncing these as sin, that is accurate. Now, the methods they use to do that are so very horribly wrong. They were outright wrong. What we ought to do is persuade them, convince them, demonstrate Jesus to them. That's what Jesus did to us. When Jesus met Paul on the road to Damascus, He didn't come with an army threatening to kill Paul because he's coming against my church. He came to him in love and with compassion. Why are you doing this? God gave him a chance to repent, to choose Jesus. God doesn't force anybody into this, and neither should we. Okay, Mestizo shamanism. This practice is known as vegetali. Let's see, vegetalismo. There it is, vegetalismo. The shamans are known as vegetalistas, and as it sounds like, they are said to gain their knowledge and power to cure from the vegetalis or plants of the region. Many believe to receive their knowledge from ingesting a hallucinogenic brew. Again, common amongst uh, these kinds of religions that deal with familiar spirits. This practice combines Catholic elements with the animistic religious beliefs common to indigenous tribes throughout this region. That's interesting. Again, we talked when we were talking about Catholicism, that when the the Catholic priests or missionaries would move into an area, a lot of times, uh, what would happen was they would simply kind of combine everything together. They would rebrand local customs and put Christian terminology on them. And so, yeah, Halloween, Christmas, Easter, all of those were secular, or not secular, but uh, pagan religion, religious festivals that were simply re- rebranded. Retooled. Hmong shamanism. To understand Hmong culture, you need to learn about Hmong religion and kinship systems. Okay, these two are the pillars of Hmong society and are not distinct spheres, but are highly interwoven. Hmong society, they're very, uh, it's very intertwined with their religion, with their belief system. The god Yom's... Sob, I'm going to slaughter these again, I apologize, or the Lord of the Sky, is commonly believed to have advised a sister and brother to bear children because they were the only human beings left on earth after a great flood. That's interesting. What's really interesting about the flood account is that every religion around the world, almost, every religion around the world has a flood account built into their mythos. It's, to a greater or lesser extent, warped a little bit and twisted based on the biblical account, but it's always there. It's always there that someone came through this great flood. I find that fascinating. The secularists do not, though. 
At first, the sister did not want to violate the incest taboo. She finally gave in after her brother tricked her by proving that supernatural beings were in favor of the plan. The remainder of the myth also varies according to the way it was handed down. After being persuaded by her brother, the sister gave birth to a strange thing reported to have been a pumpkin, a shapeless lump of flesh, green essence, clay, or an egg. (coughs) Again, depending on who's relating the account. The object was divided or carved into 12 pieces by the sibling couple. The pieces became human and the founders of the Hmong clans. Other, others recount that the pieces were scattered around by the sibling couple and grew into mountains overnight. These were the foundation of the Hmong mountains onto which people of different clans were born until the earth was full of people. An interesting reference to the Dominion Mandate. Godlike creatures, Yom Saab and his wife, Puz, ruled Natuz, or the earth. The deity couple, who all are also referred to as the queen and king of heaven, is responsible for fertility and reproduction, but rarely interact with humans. It is believed that they live in the far realms of Natuz. A half-god and half-man creature, Siv, Yis, is believed to be the master shaman who acts as an intermediary between the deity couple and humans on earth. Sivius is characterized by benevolence, profound knowledge, and strong healing powers. When humans are sick, Sivius, as the premier shaman, performs shamanistic curing rituals to obtain forgiveness for all the wrongs ever committed by the sick person. The shaman's altar, which is located on the wall of the shaman's house opposite the main door, is believed to represent Sivius's grotto near the top of one of the supernatural mountains of Natuz. In addition, the sphere above the sky is also believed to be the home of the founder couple, Nikaus Nutuswab Nuram Naz. I apologize. Meaning mother and father of the origin myth, diverse spirits called Dab and the giant dragon called Zaz. There exists a larger Dab Natuz as well as Dab for all corners of the sky. Dab Pab. Nepeg, or side above all, which we would refer to as the north. Dabhab Nitsa, the downside, which we would refer to as the south. Dabnahub Tuaj, the sunrise, which we would call the east. And Dabnahub Nepub, the sunset, what we would call the west. Each clan believes in different Dab. There appear to be more. malevolent dab, dab kus, than benevolent ones. Give my lips a moment. The giant and evil dragon Zaz is the owner of the water, rivers, ponds, and other natural features, but also lives in the sphere above the sky. The topography of the land is believed to represent the dragon's body, and its contours and veins are the mountain ridges, and water courses. Most Hmong people are afraid of malevolent spirits, and Dab, and especially of this giant dragon, which, according to Chinese folk narratives, symbolize imperial power. We see that a lot in Chinese culture. A 67-year-old man from Ban Pui emphasized, quote, Most people are afraid of Zaj because of his bad manners. It is very easy to anger him, and he eats humans. His evil sign is the rainbow, find that interesting as well. When Hmong see a rainbow, we believe that this is Zaz. A rainbow is nothing good. If Zaz has touched a person who has not respected his rules around water, the shaman must perform a ritual to heal the person. But normally no things are offered to Zaz, unquote. As an extension of the belief that Zaz is the owner of all water, Hmongs believe that water sources and rivers must be protected so that the evil and powerful dragon is not disturbed or angered. For example, when a water source ran dry in Mai Sai Mai, a sacrificial ritual was held to appease Zaz for the overuse of water, and the land around the source was turned into a protective zone. (coughs) Okay, so that's uh, kind of in a nutshell. Please understand that this is really all this is going to be uh, in this and moving forward. is kind of a, a bird's eye view. So let's look at some tenets, doctrines of shamanism. Uh, The first is animism, which is the belief that non-human entities such as animals, plants, and inanimate objects possess a spiritual essence. 
everything has a spiritual aspect to it. Everything does. The calling. Becoming a shaman is not just a job, it's a vocation. Usually, a young initiate must be called through a visitation of the spirits. Often, the call to become a shaman is directly related to a near-death experience or a serious illness. A common experience of the call to shamanism is a psychic or spiritual crisis accompanying a physical illness so that a shaman can overcome the negative powers of death and disease and heal others with empathy. That kind of makes sense. After the initiatory illness, the novice shaman studies with a mentor for years to master trance states and shamanistic traditions. Names and functions of spirits, the mythology and genealogy of the clan and sacred chants must also be studied by the shaman in training. Okay, their role in society. To an outsider, the shaman might be perceived as a primitive medical doctor. In reality, though, he or she is a revered and essential member of the community, acting as physician, spiritual minister, dream interpreter, psychiatrist, and elder statesman who serves as a bridge between the physical and spirit worlds. The shaman's healing rituals provide existence with a moral interpretation and meaningfulness. According to anthropologist Claude Levi Strauss, the function of a shaman is to reproduce and restore belief, not physical health. The soul calling. According to Hmong cosmology, the human body is host to a number of souls. The isolation and separation of one or more of these souls from the body is what causes sickness, disease, depression, and even death. Whether the soul has wandered away or has been captured by evil spirits, the shaman calls the soul back to the body in order to restore health, which leads us to string tying. One way in which a shaman returns the soul to the body is through a a string tying ritual. White, red, black, or blue strings are tied to shield the person from evil spirits in the form of sickness. These strings signifying the binding up and holding intact of the life souls. Okay, the trance. A salmon is transported to another world via a flying horse, which is a wooden bench, usually no wider than the human body. The bench acts as a form of transportation to the other world. Buffalo horn tips are thrown to the ground to determine which way the soul has gone. The salmon wears a cloth mask while he or she is reaching a trance state. The mask not only blocks out the real world so that the salmon can concentrate, but also acts as a disguise from evil spirits in the spirit world. During episodes when salmons leap onto the flying horse fence, assistance will often help them to balance, because it's believed that if a salmon falls down before his soul returns to his body, he or she will die. Okay, um which kind of ties into uh, astral projection, which is where the soul actually leaves the body and is able to, to go somewhere else, leaving the physical body behind. Some people have a problem with that, uh, but again, uh, in some form or fashion, that does happen. That is a real thing. I don't know how it works. Uh, where the Bible is silent, typically I'm silent, but it's a real thing. It's practiced in Eastern religion, Eastern philosophies a lot. Typically, though, uh, my understanding, from the little I know about it, is the more you do it, the more in danger you are of meeting an early demise. It, it, it takes a toll. And people that do it a lot often end up dying early, and not by natural causes either. Uh, things happen. Accidents happen. Diseases take place, and uh, they end up dying an early death. Take that however you want. Animal sacrifice. Shaman attempts to heal illnesses through offerings to the spirits, such as with meals or with the sacrifice of a chicken, pig, cow, or other animal. In Hmong culture, the souls of sacrificial animals are connected to human souls. Therefore, a shaman uses an animal soul to support or protect his patient's soul. Often, healing rituals are capped by a a communion meal where everyone attending the ritual partakes of the sacrificial animal who has been prepared into a meal. The event is then ended with a communal sharing of a life that has been sacrificed to mend a lost soul. Okay, so there are tools 
tools that they use are their altar. This is used to seek the help of and acknowledge the spirits of his ancestors. The bench, which we've already referred to, signifying a horse which the salmon will use to travel to and from the spirit realm. Split horns, used to communicate with the spirits and to let the salmon know which direction the soul has wandered. A spiritual sword, used to fight the evil spirits. Does that sound familiar? A spirit rattle, used to bind everything together. Finger bells are used to heal the sick. Gong and or cymbals are used to call upon the healing spirits. Among funerals. When a monk dies, his or her soul must travel back to every place the person lived until it reaches the burial place of its placenta. Only after the soul is properly dressed in the, quote, placental jacket, can it travel on to be reunited with ancestors and is to be, and to be reincarnated as the soul of a new baby. The Hmong revere the, their elders and believe that anyone who is not accorded the proper, proper funerary rites, being washed, dressed in special clothes, honored with animal sacrifices, verbally guided back to where the placenta is buried, lamented with musical instruments and laid to rest, will have a lost, naked, and wandering soul. Funeral rituals often last three to four days. Okay, so we see in, in, uh, in this study, we see the, the, uh, the religion proper, their worldview. And what's interesting about the Hmong culture is how interwoven everything is in their daily lives. Again, in, in Western Christianity, we typically separate it off to Sunday. And hopefully none of us are like this. But mainstream Christianity, if I can say it that way. They'll go to church on Sunday, sing their songs, whatever it is they do. And then they go home. They've done their duty. They've checked it off. I'm just speaking as an ex-Lutheran. This is what I did. I had to. My parents made me. I enjoyed seeing friends. You know, I went to Sunday school. I went to school with a lot of these guys, so I enjoyed that. But the service itself, I sat quietly because if I said anything, I'd get swatted or the usher would come and give me an evil look and then my mom and dad would take care of it. And if I made it through that, we made it home, <laughs> we got the rest of the day to do what I want to do. Good to go till next Sunday. And that's how... Mainstream Christianity generally is. They got their lives and church. They're very distinct and very separate. The two don't intermix. The two don't intervene. A lot of Christians will not want to share their beliefs because that's a private thing. You got your belief, I got mine, and I don't, I don't want to offend you. I don't want you to offend me. Don't talk to me about religion or politics. The two most fascinating topics. And no one wants to talk about it. I'll talk about either one all day long. <clears throat> anyway. But the Hmong culture is not like that at all. They are very intertwined. If, 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 we, do a, if we did a serious study on Old Testament Jewish culture, when they were living for God, how they were supposed to live, you'd find a very similar scenario. It was very intertwined in daily life. And it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be intertwined with our lives. This is supposed to be our lives. And it affects every aspect of our waking moments. It affects how we do our job. It affects how we are at home. It affects how we talk to our neighbors. It affects everything. It ought to be interwoven. This is our life. This is who we are. And the Hmongs understand that. That all of this is intertwined. They don't have a, a, a problem with church and state, as it were. Like we do. It's all interwoven. And so, understanding that as, uh, as someone approaching among, at work, or at school, or wherever it is, that subscribes to, to these belief systems. 
understand that they're very willing to talk. That's who they are. If they've been secularized, maybe not. But if they're a traditional Hmong, they're very, they're very willing to talk. They're very willing to, to, to share these things with you. Be willing to share back. As Christians, this is our lives. This is our, li- our life. Our lives. It's who we are. There is no separation. Again, that's a Western thing that I don't know where it came from, but it's false. We are not only allowed to talk about religion, we need to talk about religion. More importantly, or maybe more to the point, we need to talk about Jesus. We need to share Jesus with people because that is what people need. They don't need a Republican president. They don't need a Democratic president. They need Jesus. As do you and I. And if we can give people that, we give them everything. We give them, again, the power to be saved. The power to be delivered. And if I could emphasize any one single difference that the Christian, the biblical Christian worldview has over everything else, and it has a lot of advantages, a lot of things that we could talk about that are superior, logically, cogently, whatever. But the single biggest thing in my mind is its power, its authority. Only Jesus can deliver from the bondage of sin and death. Only Jesus can deliver someone from alcoholism. Only Jesus can deliver someone from drug addiction to the point that it's like they've never touched the stuff in their whole life. People can dry out. People can stop doing drugs. But they're always an addict. They get near the stuff again and they're, they're back into it. They've got to constantly make a choice to not do it. But Jesus can take that away. Only He can. And He can restore the body. He can restore the mind as if that addiction never took place at all. What an awesome thing that is. Only Jesus can save. Non-Christian worldviews, non-Christian religions, there's there's no aspect really of salvation. Not like, not like we need. People are basically good. Some are good, some are bad, some are in between. But it doesn't really matter. In the Hmong religion, that doesn't really come into play. You're going to be reincarnated as something. Typically, a human baby. The only thing that really matters is, did I appease the spirits? Are the spirits angry with me or not? If they're not angry, I'm good to go. They do reverence their elders. That's something else that we've lost in the United States. As a society, we're very anxious to shuffle our elders off to the nursing home and be done with them. Because, bless God, they can't produce anymore. They're sucking resources now. So we don't need them. We need people that can produce. Have you ever had those, uh, those moral dilemma questions in school where you have five people on a boat and you only have enough food for three people and you gotta, you got you to gotta nix two of them? And one's a doctor, one's a plumber, one's a retired accountant, you know, whatever it is. And then you have to decide which two to kill. I remember that. Where do you think this idea comes from? It's not the Bible. It 
comes from somewhere else. We ought to revere our elders. And I mean that with everything in me. Someday, if you're not already, you're going to be an elder. Said the Lord, Terry, and you're going to want to be respected too. Our elders have been where we haven't. They have knowledge and they have wisdom that we don't. You would do yourself a huge favor to take one out, get him a cup of coffee, get him a meal, and listen. Just shut your yapper and listen. You do yourself a huge favor by doing that. When my grandma and grandpa were alive, I loved doing that. I'm an introvert, so I do that naturally anyway. I would much rather listen than than talk. So, yeah. But it's so fascinating to hear their stories about World War II and the ration stamps and what they did for a job. They did something in Milwaukee, I think, building ships or or welding or something. My grandma (laughs) was a welder. Anyway, um, just fascinating. Going through the Depression, growing up through the Depression, what they had to do. Amazing, amazing stories. What they endured. My grandma's grandma, when she was a baby or a small child, they had Indians that came to their cabin, and they would give them bread, and they they would share things. She'd tell me stories about that. And life lessons, and... uh, how to overcome adversity. How to, how to deal with hard times. I even had hard times like she did. And she came through just fine. So our elders are to be revered. They are to be respected. I don't know why I'm on this, but I re- I'm really feeling it. I love, I love the wisdom of my elders. I love sitting and listening to them talk. Just just talk. Just tell me something. Tell me something that you've been through. Tell me, a, tell me a story about your childhood, about growing up. What was it like? I love that. Someday I'm going to be doing that. You guys got to give me some stories. <laughs> I don't feel like I have enough stories right now. Maybe I will. But in the Hmong culture, don't disrespect their elders. They will not appreciate that. They reverence their elders. Their religion is, is very, their belief system is very interwoven with their, with their daily lives, their regular lives. They live according to that. As we go through these different religions, these different uh, belief systems, we discover that we can learn some things from them. They're all in Scripture in one form or another. We ought to reverence our elders. That's biblical. But we don't. We're too pressed for time. We got this going on, we got that going on. We got a thousand things to get done. And only 500 units of time to do it. Maybe some reordering of our lives is in order. Maybe we ought to not be so busy. We ought to have time for fellowship. We ought to have time to break bread with one another, to listen to one another, to minister to one another, to be available for each other. We ought to have time for that. In our uh, in the UPCI, the, the, the ministry is suffering a crisis right now of loneliness. 
some polls have been done recently, and and I find this fascinating from a sociological perspective, but scary from from a realistic perspective. Uh, that people in the ministry are so lonely, they have no friends. And I kind of get it, because, you know, as... Well, that's irrelevant. But, by extension, our congregants, our anybody, anybody in the church is in a very similar situation. Before I became a minister, let me take a step back. When I first came into church, I had friends in the world. I had enough friends. Again, I'm an introvert. I don't need a lot of friends. Just a few very close, tight friends. That's what I like. And I had those. I had more than that. So I was good. When I got into church, I was really excited. And they were really not excited for me. They were freaked out. They were scared. And, you know, I, like one guy said, I gave him, how was it, Acts and 238s? <laughs> and Acts and 238s? Anyway, I just unloaded on him. Vomited all over him. Everything I knew. Everything that was going on. And, yeah, okay, thanks, bye. <clears throat> that was... Why is no one coming to Jesus? Why is no one excited like I am? Anyway, so they were gone now. So now I was trying to make friends in the church, and I did that. But as time goes on, people move away, situations happen, I moved away, and it just seems like as you grow up, you get married, you have kids, you got a job. There's less and less and less time to just sit down with someone and have a meal. More and more I look at, I think I'm rambling now. More and more I look at like the Amish community and how people lived in like the 1850s. I don't think I'd want to go back to the 1850s overall. Medicine was atrocious. Just horrible, just scary. But their society was so awesome. They helped people raise barns. They had barn raisings. They got together and had these, these as communities. And had these great big potluck meals. And, and people had time. It was hard work. Hard work. But they still had time to do all of these things. They were a tight-knit community. And people weren't so concerned about uh, making a good first impression as they were what your character was. It was more character-based, not personality-based. Did you have a good character? And people knew you had a good character because you've been there your whole life. And you've established that over a lifetime. I've never experienced that, but I still miss it. I miss being able to do that. And I think we would we would do well ourselves if we were able somehow to slow down a little bit. Again, the Hmong culture is very tightly woven. They're they're very relational between Children, parents, grandparents, they all have very close relationships with one another. And that would be awesome. I'm out of time. Let's all stand. It's another one of the stories I enjoyed listening to with my grandparents. They got to do that a lot, too. Amen. Let's pray in closing. Lord Jesus, you're an awesome God. I thank you for these truths that you have revealed unto us. We repent, O God, that we have let some of them fall by the wayside. Help us, I pray, to live this whole book.
not just parts of it, not just the ones that are convenient or the ones we like the most, but help us to live all of them out in accordance with your word, accordance with your will. Help us to demonstrate effectually, accurately, Jesus Christ to this world. Bless the remainder of our service, I pray, and these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for your kind attention. Take a 50-minute break, and we'll be back.